Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We're kidding ourselves if we think people will stop talking. You're one of the Monterey Five, right? Monterey Five? Just the way he said it, you know. How did he say it? Like we all have scarlet letters on our backs. It's gonna get us. It's gonna get us all. What are you talking about? For why? Hello and welcome to Still Watching Big Little Lies. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week on the show, we break down the latest episode of the HBO series Big Little Lies. This week, we will be speaking about season two, episode four, She Knows. Um, uh, Before we get into any of that, actually, Richard, who do you think, who do you feel like the she and she knows uh, is? Um. I think it's actually about Bonnie's mom. Yeah, right? It's Elizabeth. Yeah. I yeah. don't think it's about Mary Louise. I don't think it's about the detective because they've already known. Exactly. They've I, been known. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So that's that's my that's my take, too, um, as well. Uh, usually we have an interview with someone from the show this week. We do not. Instead, what we have in its place is a bunch of great emails from, from you all. We got so many long, thoughtful emails. And that's no surprise, you know, when we're talking about a show that has so much to do with abuse and gaslighting and trauma and all this sort of stuff. A lot of, a lot of our listeners have a lot to say and I'm, I'm really glad you all wrote in. If you want to chime in, uh, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. So we're going to talk about some emails throughout and also just sort of break down our thoughts about the latest episode. The first email I want to get to though, uh, has some bad news for Richard. And I don't know if someone's already tweeted this at you, Richard, but Mm-mm. Esteban wrote in to let us know that, um, the ice cream flinging scene that you've so been looking forward to was actually cut from the final season. I have to go. This has been fun, but I'll see you. <laughs> the whole reason we're doing the podcast was to get to the ice cream. So, um, yeah, apparently, um, Meryl, uh, Meryl Streep revealed that in an interview that the ice cream didn't make it. Um, so that's nice that's, to know. I mean, like, I will say this. That's nice to, <laughs> it's nice to, here's, here's my silver lining. We've yeah. been, uh, interrogating a little bit whether or not sometimes Big Little Lies indulges too much in the like over the top, um, ness, you know, specifically when we think about Laura Dern's character Renata and stuff like that. And so maybe isn't it nice to know that in season two they were like, okay, maybe, maybe ice cream flinging is too real housewives and we don't want to do that. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think in the broader context of the show, it absolutely makes sense. And, um, you know, especially cause we were talking last week or I, I was at least, um, and I think you agreed with me to some extent that it was like maybe a little too, too. Um, and I think, yeah, Madeline hurling a frozen treat at Meryl Streep might be <laughs> a, bridge, <laughs> a bridge too far. I mean, a snow cone, maybe, but Jerry, sure. no. Oh, yes. Ugh. In this economy. So, okay. So, um, uh, a more, a more serious uh, email I want to get to is from Sarah. We got actually a few emails from people saying that they think we didn't fully, we don't fully grok sort of what Meryl Streep is doing as Mary Louise. Um, and, um, 
maybe some of the more insidious uh, behavior that we're not noting. So um, Sarah pointed out, um, uh, I think you guys undersold the degree to which Mary Louise is a potential malevolent figure. She's not overtly aggressive. No. And a mother trying to defend the memory of a dead child is something we tend to instinctively sympathize with as an audience. But under that mild grieving mother act, there has been a lot of, there have been a lot of red flags resembling classic signs of an abuser. She doesn't respect boundaries and constantly pushes at any lines set down by people around her, stalking Jane, rifling through Celeste's drawers, etc. She displays an ability to turn from warm to malicious when told no or challenged. And to my mind, worst of all, she because she consistently gaslights basically everyone she talks to with a particular emphasis thus far on Celeste and Jane. Um... I'm going to focus on the rape uh, abuse denials for a second because she does something revealing. I'm going to call the full Susan Collins. She doesn't come in guns blazing and call Jane or Celeste uh, full on liars. Instead, she says it wasn't that bad, or maybe you're remembering it wrong, or what did you do in the lead up? Could you have helped create the problem? It's subtler and uglier than moreover. slut shaming because she picks at them each slowly, sussing out their own deep rooted fears. I don't think it's an accident. We see Jane ask Celeste if she resents her for initiating things with Perry to establish that something she worries about before Mary Louise brings up the same question, for example. And then Mary Louise uses it against them. Their functions, uh, this functions as gaslighting, another classic abuser technique, isolating victims in order to cut off support systems and the ability to get a reality check from someone outside the glare of the abuser's gaslight, so to speak. Um, and then um, this is a great long email from Sarah, but Sarah goes on to mention another thing that uh, Mary Louise does that I'll just sum up, which is, Something that, something is a particular pet peeve of mine, uh, in everyday conversation is when someone says, I was speaking to Jane or I was speaking to Celeste or I was speaking to whoever about you and like couch, like, which ramps up your paranoia. And it's just like, it, it always hurts me personally when someone brings that up. Cause I'm like, listen, you can come to me with your problems. And if someone else has a problem with me, they can come to me with their problems, but I don't need you to say I've got corroborating evidence from all these other people I've been talking to about you. Um, I mean, that's an insight into my feelings about how to communicate with people. But uh, what do you think of Sarah's uh, – I think Sarah wrote this email before obviously seeing episode four. And I think episode four just sort of supports um, her statement here in terms of Mary Louise's behavior. What do you what do you think of this email, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I think episode four is really where um, – you know, because, you know, I was I, – I guess maybe my hesitance was I, I wasn't really sure – that I wanted the show to create a new villain, you know, I, in some ways I wanted it to live in, in a world that, uh, it, I don't know, felt a little bit less absolute than that in yeah. a way. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, you know, I guess the way that Celeste and I mean, felt about Perry last season, I guess you could sort of say that at least in her mind, there was a, there was not an absolute thing happening, but for us, certainly I think there was, um, but in this episode for sure. And I think that, you know, what, what is one classic abuser threat, um, leveled against very often women, uh, is, you know, mistaking away their children. Yeah. You know, if you dare to sort of name this thing, if you say you were abused, if you do this, then, well, that's it. I, and I'm going to get the kids, you know, and, and here we have it not being the abusive, uh, father of the children, uh, but uh, his mother. And, um, but she's employing the same tactic. And I think that to me was like, okay, this is where the show is headed with this. Um, and, and also just other subtler things. I think I really appreciated more, uh, the nuances of Meryl Streep's performance in this episode than I had, uh, last week. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because in Sarah's email, she, she goes on to predict that Mary Louise is going to try for custody and she was right. So there you go. Um, well done, Sarah. Well done, Sarah. And then we got another email from, um, uh, a listener, Ray, who uh, wrote another great long email, but her sort of a, a additional assessment of the Mary Louise um, character is to say, w- her assessment is when you see someone say, Perry's not, when you see Mary Louise say, Perry's not evil. He can't be evil. He's my good boy. He can't be evil. Uh, in, in Ray's mind, in this listener's mind, when someone says something like that, it means they know evil, have known evil, have defined evil somehow in their lives. And she was like, you know, could Perry's 
father have been an abuser? We get more info on Perry's father in this episode, but could Perry's father have been an abuser? Could uh, Mary Louise have been abused? You know, these things are cyclical and generational. You know, does she have an experience with abusers that um, makes her feel like she understands what the definition of an abuser is and cannot reconcile that to her son? And like what we may be discovering in this episode is that Mary Louise herself is the abuser. We've been looking for this. Like, here we are, we're meeting the woman who... I don't know if it's fair to say this, but helped create Perry. So I feel like we've been on the lookout throughout of like, what can we read in her behavior that could help us understand how Perry grew up to be the person that he is, you know? Mm -hmm. And one thing that weirdly stuck out to me in this episode is when she comes to Madeline's house, when they're doing the pumpkin carving and she comes in and, you know, she's doing the like, where are my grandsons? And she, she calls them her two soldiers. And Mm. there was just something like weirdly, you know, like, I I don't know, no knock on our like military, but there was just something like weirdly martial about it that I was just like bristled at that particular nickname for two little boys, you know? Well, you don't, yeah, you don't have to knock on the, 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 you know, members of the military at the moment, but to, to, to sort of question the early militarization of young boys, you know, and sort of uh, suggesting that that is some sort of, some, you know, aspiration toward toughness and violence, uh, is, you know, and it made me re- think about, um, you know, when we see Mary Louise in the first episode in the car, kind of instructing the, her two grandsons about what makes good men. And, you know, there was just a very, not just gendered, because she was specifically speaking about two boys, but, um, a sort of veneration of maleness over maybe, you know, uh, she, I don't know that she would speak that way to a little girl. Um, so right. yeah, I think all of that is, uh, you know, for a season that I think is not quite as subtle in other arenas, I, I'm appreciating the way that they are teasing out Mary Louise's psychology. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we get some more of it, uh, in the, with the introduction of this new character played by Dennis O'Hare, who I was so excited to see because I love him so much. Um, but we'll get to all of that. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I wanted to get to a little thesis that I'm cooking um, on for this season, which is, um, and we'll have some more emails later on, but one, one thesis that I got out of this episode is my memory of season one, and I did rewatch it recently, is that when it comes to sort of the bad behavior of both the dads and moms of Monterey, the thesis of season one seemed to kind of be um, – these kids are preternaturally mature, which they are, you know, like Chloe and Ziggy and Amabella are all like, you know, very precocious. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it's like the, the parents are the kids and the kids are the parents sort of like dichotomy or whatever. And this season, I feel like the emphasis is even more on these men are boys. Um, and we get that, it, you know, we've seen that with Gordon, Renata's husband with like all of his toys and his train set and like all of that sort of stuff in the season. But then in the scene with Ed and Nathan and the, at the party where they sort of start fighting and, and, you know, they've, they've had this sort of like playground taunting, uh, relationship throughout the whole series. But when it, 
when you when I rewatched uh, this episode for the second time, seeing how that fight breaks out, which is Nathan pulling the wig down, and then when it gets broken up by the women, he keeps going, "We were just playing, we were just playing." It's like mm-hmm. two boys fighting, at, you know, two little boys fighting at a party. So, like, yeah, do you feel like the show is making some kind of commentary in season two about? Um, how women have to mother their husbands as much as their kids, or are the women as childish this season as the men? Or what, what do you think about that? Hmm. Well, I think it's complicated. Um, but I do. I, I think there's an interesting parallel between what you're talking about, you know, vis-a-vis Ed and Nathan fighting and, and whatnot, and the scene with Madeline and Ed where they're, um, you know, out on their fabulous. We were talking about your favorite, my favorite home oh, last God. episode, yeah. like that, that like wonderful, comfortable outdoor living room, essentially. And, you know, they've kind of made up a little bit because, or he's back in the house because she said it wasn't us. It was my problem. So she shoulders the blame for this fractured relationship. And yes, she's the one who stepped out, but like, that's often the symptom of something much, you know, deeper. Um, and so he's, I guess, content for the time being enough with that, but also still wants to hold it over her a bit again, petulantly. And then she's out there and she has this confrontation with her daughter who made this kind of, you know, funny pun joke for school about her mom being unhinged for a class project. And, you know, Ed has been non-responsive uh, about uh, her Madeline's idea to go up to Big Sur or down to Big Sur. I don't know geographic geography up there, you know, to Big Sur to, you know, go to some sort of couples retreat thing. He's nonverbal about that. He just sort of, and, and I guess basically I think that they're drawing a comparison between the way that Madeline's daughter uh, reacts to her and the way that Madeline's husband does. Um, and so I think absolutely there you have that sort of thesis about, um, about the, I mean, I guess we talk a lot about emotional labor that, that women and families, um, have to kind of both shoulder and direct and, you know, placate and, and all that stuff. So, so while Madeline, you know, clearly has a difficult personality, which I know difficult is a loaded word when yeah. talking about women, but, um, you know, she can be hard to sort of, like in some senses i i think that we're seeing more the product of that which is like that she's in a household where she's not really getting any help yeah absolutely like he you see his removal there in the final scene uh that they have or no it's the penultimate because i think she tries to initiate sex after that but in that scene they have where he's like i'm here aren't i and she's like you are not here and i think we can mm-hmm. all agree with that like forever whatever madeline's faults uh may be whatever mistakes she made and she is like trying to some degree to own them um you know th- the accusation that uh, you know their therapist made last week of you know, people step out, as you just said, people step out because of, you know, well, like often some sort of withholding or something like that. We see that so much more here from Ed than I remember seeing in season one, where he's just like, I'm here. And she's like, physically being in the house is not the same as being here, by the way. Yeah. So, um, and I also yeah. think that while Ed at the party, um, you know, and she's like, do you want to dance? He's like, not in front of all these people. Yeah, I want to dance with you, but not in front of all these people. And then he goes on this little mini monologue about how everyone's pretending. And it's like, yes, and I want to talk more about that party uh, later in this episode. And So Ed isn't exactly wrong, but it's also just like, oh, like, cool insight, 14-year-old. Like, you know, <laughs> everyone's a poser. Like, oh, okay, like, Holden Coffee. I was like, about to say, <laughs> yeah. what a phony. <laughs> yeah, like, calm down. Um, so, yeah, I think that I think I really like Adam Scott's performance um, in yeah. the show, particularly in this episode, because I think he's getting at something very sharp in in how this guy is not a bad guy, but he's a lazy guy. Yeah, I I like that. Um it's it's interesting. Um and then he has this sort of like little vengeance or I I can't tell like I actually kind of like the Bonnie Ed connection and in season 1 it felt like um it wasn't very pointed. There are ways in which in season 2 it does feel pointed on Ed's behalf to like get at Madeline, right? Um but there also it's just like Bonnie's always it's nice to see Bonnie smile, I guess. So when she and Ed are dancing and fooling around, like, then it's like, cut to Nathan looking at her, cut to Madeline looking at them, you know, like, cut to all of that. But, but it is kind of nice to see these two characters who have gone through some shit, like, have a nice moment. I don't know. It's complicated, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, should we talk about Elizabeth in this episode? Is it too early to talk about that? No. 
Oh, I well, mean, she knows. Yeah, she knows. Well, really quickly before that, uh, the other sort of male partner that we had, well, we should talk, uh, Perry, uh, in terms of this idea of like, uh, men as boys, like Perry in season one, and I talked about this earlier, uh, in this podcast season, like one of my favorite things they did in season one was that whole like monster routine that he used to do. Mm-hmm. But, but, but one of the like seen as a good aspect of Perry was how he was able to get on his boys level, you know what I mean? And play with them. That was like, that was the good side of Perry allegedly, but like, you know, it takes on a different, you know, you could t- take it a different light uh when viewed with his other men of like this, he wasn't a father to them. He was a pal. You know, right? Sort of thing. And isn't that always the privilege, or not always, but often the privilege of yeah. men in heterosexual families, where yeah, they you know, mom has to be the disciplinarian, the organizer, the planner, the scheduler, the you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the dad can kind of swoop in, do I, you know, honestly, a pretty hackneyed. I mean, I think that the the, the monster thing was like I- interesting in the context of the show, but like it wasn't like he was some, he wasn't fucking Fred Rogers, you know, <laughs> he was like, you know, and also this whole thing in this episode with Mary Louise being like, it's the best pizza in the world like oh cool perry said that pizza was good like what a great dad you know perry knows (laughs) how to stretch the cheese and i'm like we all know how to stretch cheese it's okay (laughs) amazing you know and i think that like i think the show is being smart about that where like you watch mary louise venerate him and she can do it because those kids are young and kids are impressed by small things you know what i mean and and it just seems to like to, to to lock into their minds or to try to lock into their minds like the goodness of their father the 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 innate specialness of him based on small sort of common parental things is uh you know is very telling absolutely i, I and then the last uh fellow we should maybe talk about is Corey, who's like such a a sweet little aquarium angel um you know i i did like the moment when Renata and Bonnie are both just like, oh my god, he's so cute. What? Who is this cute boy um, you brought to this party? Uh, Laura yeah. Dern playing the energy of a hostess greeting people at a loud party <laughs> was so perfectly done yeah. and also chilling because I saw a little bit of myself in it. And I was like, oh my god, is that was that what I was like at my birthday party? Like, just kind of like, everything's fabulous. Hi, oh my god. You know, like, it, I just, it was just like a brilliant piece of acting and writing. Um, and yeah, the and whole like thing about improvisation, him. I think. Um, oh, for sure. Just very our, naturalistic. Yeah. Our guest last week, uh, PJ Byrne said that like Laura Dern is a huge improviser, which like that made me watch this episode. Like I was thinking the, the, the greeting scene is amazing, but also like the gift bag giveaway scene mm-hmm. where she's like, Oh, this dress, it's yours. Like all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm, I'm like, mm-hmm. wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I love both of those bookends for sure. Um, but Corey, uh, is this is like a sweet boy in theory hopefully there's no like uh we've talked about maybe like some questions some potential minefields but he seems right now to be like a sweet boy in the vein of like ziggy you know what i mean like mm-hmm. but still very boyish so that's sort yeah of- and i liked i mean for one thing um i'm to use a 70s term to describe this you know with his like open collar and teased up hair he looked like a stone fox (laughs) he looked really good Uh um but i like the scene outside when he goes to talk to jane and you know he's like we don't have to talk about it and she's like i want to you know and i think that was her i guess pushing back a little bit about like um maybe a sort of over politeness or chivalry or something like i i i appreciated the sort of di- the, the sort of odd dynamic of that and i guess you know cory did say in an earlier episode like i'm weird or something um and maybe we're supposed to see that as something of a red flag but um i don't know i think the show has p- give saddled jane with enough you know bad male energy that maybe they're trying to give her another side of of that you know yeah. and i hope i hope so anyway it would be nice to have one like example of a nice uh, male partner. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, all right. So, um, let us get back to Elizabeth and what she knows. What, what does she know? And when does she know it? Um, so Elizabeth throughout is sort of like stalking around this party going like, I got, I got bad energy from this room. Um, in between her like amazing dance moves, she's like observing people, observing things and having these flashes. And then she has this, um, 
stroke and goes into the hospital and then we see her see something um which we can talk about uh what what do you what do you feel about elizabeth and and what she knows here um i liked the moment at the party where where she and bonnie are dancing and she's you know off and i like that she was having fun at the party you know that she wasn't all just like i'm here to you know prophecy doom like it was it was she was she was just you know having fun connecting with her daughter and you know she kind of cups her face and it's a sweet moment and then it turns into something else where she was sort of maybe trying to like read her and i don't mean like in the paris is burning kiki pose way of reading somebody but i mean like psychically like me and 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 bonnie reacted in such a way that you're like oh this has definitely happened before and i think i wonder if in some ways her reaction to it i think it's complicated because i think she, in some ways she does believe that it's true but would te- would, it, would mostly say oh no it's not you know even though she is pretty you know woo woo and crunchy herself like i like that little shiver or and then later bigger shiver of the almost supernatural in there you know yeah. uh, um and i and i and i like i i i think it was an interesting detail to have Bonnie be a little f- afraid of it. Yeah. And this is something that, that when I interviewed Crystal Fox in an earlier episode of this podcast, she was who plays Elizabeth. She, she sort of said something that made me feel like we are supposed to take her visions maybe a little bit more seriously than I was initially, just because yeah. I don't like uh, supernatural prejudices or whatever. Like when Bonnie's like, none of this, none of this crystal stuff in my house. I was like, yeah, get that vision stuff out of here. But then like, you know, uh, we see her see things. We've, we've seen her. She's talked about this drowning motif, but like, do you think what we're seeing is her seeing Bonnie metaphorically drowning in the lies, blah, 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 or because the shot at the end, I have a couple thoughts about the shot at the end. The shot at the end is of Zoe Kravitz, right? Um, she's in like a black zipped up hoodie and jeans, but I have a, I have three possibilities for what we're seeing. Are we seeing the future? Like, is Bonnie going to die either by suicide or something else? You know, is she going to die drowning? Um, is this a metaphorical, like, you're drowning in your lies and it's going to kill you, the guilt's going to kill you? Or are we seeing a memory of something that might have happened to, like, teenage Bonnie? Uh, because we get screeners, but they're not, like, sharp, sharp quality. So I, like, freeze-framed it, but I couldn't um, see how young Zoe Kravis, but Zoe Kravis could get away with looking like quite young, you know? Um, and she was playing teenagers like two years ago. Right. Like, and so like with the, with the zipped, the zipped up hoodie and the jeans, it just doesn't look like what Bonnie wears now. And so I mm-hmm. was almost wondering, like, are we seeing a flashback? And we've, we've seen these like little hints that me, that Elizabeth, uh, when she was drinking more and Bonnie was younger was abusive to her daughter, at least somewhat. Um, and potentially. And so, you know, was she involved in some kind of accident with Bonnie where Bonnie wound up like under dangerously underwater as a teen? These these are my three thoughts. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. other thoughts or any inclination one way or another? Well, I mean, first of all, when you say you have something of a supernatural bias, do you mean that you're more of like a Dean Winchester girl or a Sam? <laughs> Whichever one whips their shirt off more, that's the one yeah, that, I, okay. that I'm here for. Because I know that that's, there's a contentious debate still <laughs> about that. Um, no, I, 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 I agree with everything you said. I think the fact that she has a stroke while or she had a stroke, and I guess that was the. Then she had an epileptic fit or something, or a seizure. Um, that while sort of connecting to Bonnie's trauma or tragedy or secret or whatever, however you Elizabeth sees it, uh, I feel like adds more just weight to Bonnie's sense of guilt and you know everything like that and and so i i i appreciated the sort of the mystic kind of connection between those two things um i hope that elizabeth comes back you know because i think she's a really interesting character played so well by crystal fox um but in another way i wouldn't mind if bonnie's past was left a little sort of tantalizingly unknown you know mm-hmm. um I, I we only have a few more episodes left we've i guess three more right um yeah so who who knows who, what what how much is going to come? But uh, clearly, this is just another uh, mile on the road toward Bonnie having a, a some kind of break in some either good or bad. 
Yeah, one of, one of the theories that we got from a listener was like that uh, in in that listener email from Ray that I read earlier, a bit of that um, Perry's father was not only like uh, abusive, but maybe like killed his brother and then mm-hmm. Mary Louise killed him. And like that just went down a path where I'm like, I don't think we have time for that. I don't think we have the time for a revelation that Perry's father. And and plus, I, I felt convinced by what Mary Louise said in this episode about what happened to Perry's father. So like... I'm mindful of the fact that we're four episodes into a seven episode season. And there are some things that I just don't feel like we have time for. Um, I feel like we could have time for Bonnie's full history, mm-hmm. but I agree with you that I, I don't know if I want, I want it if it gives Zoe Kravitz something more meaty to play, because I, I really enjoyed every single thing that she's done this season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't mind more and deeper and further for her. Um, but I think maybe we can get flashes of it without, literalizing it uh, making it even more literal i guess than it already is um mm. and and have it inform what it may be the unra- unraveling if someone's going if, if someone is going to break in this um uneasy alliance between four women uh am i counting incorrectly five women um it's either going to be celeste or bonnie those those feel like the weakest links right of our yeah of our yeah. um, women here. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Bonnie seems the most likely given her guilt. I mean, we saw that in this episode when Celeste and Bonnie are talking at the party and Madeline comes up and they're like, you made us lie. And now we're drowning. in our lives. <laughs> so that was a great scene too. I mean, Reese is- well, the whole party scene, you know, yeah. it, it does feel a little bit like chum for the fans. You know, you liked them in the breakfast at Tiffany or the Audrey Hepburn costumes last year. And now here they are in disco fabulous. And apparently everyone in this town, this show, this town Monterey must have like 18 different costume shops because <laughs> like there's enough to go around for everybody. Um, the day before Jane's like, I'm not sure if it's costumes or not to like, right. uh, and then, Corey when they're surfing and then voila there's a Ziggy Stardust like yeah, costume like and, elaborate wigs yeah, and everything yeah. um and I like the joke of it where you know what kid in 2019 is like into anything related to disco that said I remember when I was a kid when I was in like third grade the I went to a private school for two years before my parents were like oh we can't afford this <laughs> um and uh uh there was a sock hop, like a 50s sock hop in the gym for like the third and fourth graders or something. And it was at like in the evening. So it felt like kind of a thing. And I'm, and I'm looking back, it's like, that was probably more so the parents who were all born in the fifties could like, you know, dress their kids up in funny outfits. And I think this was the same thing where it's like, sure. You know, you know, talking about how the men are, the men are kids. Like, here's everyone being a kid because they're the ones getting excited about this party and dressing up and whatever. And, it's supposed to be for the little ones, you know, um, do the little ones know who the band playing you know, was? And I don't know. I just, I just think it's such a funny, it's a little obvious maybe to have another fabulous party on big little eyes. That's also a very sort of silly and telling party, but, um, I don't mind it when you get Reese Witherspoon and like, you know, teased out hair like that. Oh, so good. Um, yeah, the tramps, who knew? Um, yes. Uh, the Monterey costume shops. <laughs> doing doing their finest work but then like renata somehow got a costume like a mother-daughter costume and that is that's next level renata Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. good job you yeah it's um at least they didn't like end it with another party do you know what i mean at least they put it mid-season so it's not like quite exactly the same as season one but um i I take your meaning um all right. Let's see. What else do I want to talk about? Well, let's talk about let's talk about um, Celeste and the hot bartender and the mm. Indian and all of that. Um, by the way, when that guy showed up, like just to take their drink order, I was like, "That guy's yeah. doing more than just taking <laughs> drink orders." Like, yeah, uh, they cast that guy. You know, I mean, he and he looks a little like Perry, right? He's like he's a tall um, Nordic-looking man who looks mm-hmm. like little Sarsgaardy and stuff like that, but. Um, like I, I didn't. I don't know that I picked it immediately for Celeste. I was like, "Is this another point of interest for Jane or something like that?" And then I was like, "Nope, that's not where that went." Yeah. Um, and I liked the subtle. The, I liked. I keep saying subtle on this yeah. episode, but I liked the way that they, you know, she says goodbye to Jane because she's like, "No, I'm, you know, I'm done." And then she's kind of just sitting there, and the bartender walks up. And is like, "So, what's going to be?" And she's like, "Yeah, might as well." And then that's all we see of that until the next morning. You know, I think th- I, I I like that they didn't double down on showing us Celeste having another sort of fraught um, sexual encounter. Um, you know, I I I think it was it was it was efficient and telling. Uh, uh, you know, sort of like 
writing, I guess. Right. Um, and they, and they flash to it and they flash to like her, um, like her sort of confusing images of him with images of Perry and stuff like right. that. But, but like that was it, you know, well, otherwise it wasn't, it wasn't like immediate and explicit, sort of explicit. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and, and the, the benefit of that is that when you cut to the next morning and Mary Louise comes in, um, if you're not like me and a deeply suspicious person, maybe you don't expect him to walk out of like out of frame with naked or with his shirt off. I was, I was like waiting for him. I'm like, he's there. It's going to be bad. Um, and he was, but, um, um, Nicole Kimmon played this uh, zonked out, so confused um, version of Celeste, which she's, you know, she's done a little bit before, but like so well, like, it's just, I don't think it's over the top. I think it's just like someone through a fog trying, it's uh, this, I have a, Richard and I both have a bit of a theater background, which is why we are stars of stage and screen right now. And um <laughs> Um, I remember, and I don't know if this is a bad acting note, please write it if you're a prof- professional actor and you're like, why don't give people this note? But like the, the number one note an acting teacher once gave me about acting drunk is like, you're trying so hard to act normal. Like when you're drunk, you're trying so hard. You're like, I'm fine. This is fine. I can walk. Mm-hmm. I can talk. This is fine. Um, and that sort of scene, and, and, and that is like, once I got that acting note, like you do realize that sometimes or I do anyway, when I've had like a little too much a drink and I'm like, Oh God, I'm trying so hard to talk normally right now. This is so bad. Um, and yeah. so, uh, that's what Celeste, you know, that, that I feel like is sort of what Nicole Kidman was playing in that scene where she's just like, I'm, I'm just drinking my coffee. This is fine. Yeah. I, I, my eyes are open. I'm fine. This is fine. I'm here, you know, sort of thing. And it was, I thought it was, I thought it was a terrifying scene, you know, because, yeah. um, you, you know, I, I've been on both sides of that where, you know, you know, you had a too late a night out and you wake up and you're like, well, I'm not, I'm still not okay. You know? Um, and then also when you, you know, go to meet someone somewhere or whatever, and you realize that they're in a sort of not great state, you know, and there's such a feeling of concern and revulsion. And, uh, you know, if you're the person bearing witness to it, and then if you're that person, a shame and a sort of like panic. And I just think that like the way they did that was so, um, credible, you know? And, 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 and even though, you know, we're sort of seeing the rise of Mary Louise as a, as a villain here, um, uh, there, there is in a, some ways, yeah, you know? there is a concern there. I mean, not that, you know, like, like Madeline said, like, you're entitled to a private life, blah, blah, blah. She should have called you. It was too early in the morning, you know. Sure. Yes. That's all fair. And, 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 and Celeste is certainly entitled to that. But like, yeah. I mean, if you're the kid's grandmother and you come home with them and there's a strange man in the house and she's all zonked out, like, yeah, that, that's, that's a, that's a worry. Like take even taking the kids out of the equation, Celeste who has uh, survived. Like I have no issue with Celeste being like you know a, a, a sexual person as soon as she wants to be a sexual person. That's mm-hmm. not the issue. The issue is like when she tells Madeline, "I wasn't even aware he was in the house." You well, know right. what I mean? Yeah. And then you're yeah. like, even without kids, this is a person who's not doing uh you know health exhibiting healthy behavior around the right. sexual encounter. So. Um, and then, yeah, so then when Mary Louise has this conversation later with Jane, um, and Jane comes in sort of like righteously defending her friend and then is a little like, oh, hmm. On the one hand, I, I don't want to forget like the, the wise emails we got about Mary Louise being an expert gaslighter and all this sort of stuff. But on the other hand, like, she does have a few fine points there. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think she's, I don't think she's going about any of this correctly when it comes to Celeste at all. But she's not incorrect to tell Jane, like, you know, Celeste crashed her car. So, yeah, do you want Ziggy in the car with Celeste? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, yeah. And, and those are the material things. But I think that also what Mary Louise is, is doing in other ways with this kind of concern trolling, this sort of fake yeah. pity, you know, and, and, and demanding that every feeling Celeste feels is grief, that it can't possibly be anything else. It's just grief. You need time to heal. And it's like, no, there's more there. It's not, it's, it's, it's a relief that he's gone. It's, it's a, it's a fear. It's a lot of things. Um, and yes, grief is part of it, but it's not the whole story. And Celeste keeps, uh, or Mary Louise keeps insist- insisting that it is. And, you know, just kind of, 
you know, when, when there's that incredible scene where Celeste slaps Mary Louise, uh, and her glasses fall off, which I, I always instinctually feel bad for the person who's just had their glasses knocked off, even if they're a bad person. Cause I'm just like, I just, I'm like, Oh no, their glasses. I think about like my girl and you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> Thomas yeah. J. Thomas J. He needs his glasses. I can't see um, but, uh, you know, and then, and then she, Mary Louise immediately recenters like some sort of, creature where she just like goes snaps right back and is like and it's like no it's you know that's just you know just and and it's this it's this really menacingly imperious imperious kind of tone that well a we know meryl streep was good at that but b uh yeah further drives home in this episode that this is a woman with a lot of malintent i think and well, yeah she baited her into that slap yeah, she was she yeah. needling her like she comes into Mad- like i really wish madeline had just closed the door in her face you know what i yeah. mean and I, I kind of understand why like it makes sense to me that madeline like ever wanting to seem the chipper hostess um like would invite her in and roll her eyes at her behind her back and stuff like that but i really wish uh, it was so intrusive and yeah so this is this is this is to support these emails we got this is mary louise not respecting boundaries needling celeste provoking celeste into an attack and then being like my 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 temper 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 sort of thing mm-hmm. what we call that foreplay and all the while we talked about a, a lot has been made about that the sort of stage business that Meryl Streep does with her crucifix earlier in the season where she like sort of pulls it on her chin uh when she was talking to Madeline this stage business with her glasses where she's just like looking at her glasses you know it, it mm-hmm. like it's such good uh work you know what i mean because she's she's doing something very big while keeping it very small and that's just that's just um i don't know if you've heard but meryl streep is a good actress so yeah you know who was also a good a- actor is dennis o'hare who yes has, you know those great that great scene in the, the, the lawyer's office where he's basically just like you know he tells her this thing we've seen a lot of movies and tv where if you talk to a lawyer the other the other party can't um you know retain them uh and she's like oh and and you're like wait does mary louise actually think that's because i think in that scene she's in some ways deciding like okay how far do i actually want to take this yeah you know and then obviously she decides what she decides but it's it's just funny watching her have that moment and then dennis O'Hare, forgive me i forget the character's name um be like like kind of settle back in his chair and be like look (laughs) this is not pretty if you want this to be done, like I understand that it might seem extreme, but um, so I, you know, again, I, I appreciated that the the show wasn't being super absolutist about people's motivations. You know, um, it was a little more complicated than for Mary Louise in that scene. I think maybe I'm giving her too much credit. Yeah, no, I think it was. Um, yeah, his character's name is Ira Farber. Um, the and and Dennis O'Hare showing up in this, so um. Great actor of, of, uh, stage and, and largely TV, I think more than film. Um, but Dennis O'Hara has been sort of, um, in what I would consider, um, forgive me, American Horror Story purgatory, where like, you know, he's been like a Ryan Murphy regular. And that mm-hmm. means he's been in a lot of projects that I haven't been that interested in lately in later seasons. And so I've missed him. He's on the good fight sometimes, you know, he's on This Is Up Us, which is another show that I don't watch. But like when he showed up here with his beautiful voice, I was just like, Yes. Mm-hmm. Bring Dennis O'Hare into this. I want it. Um, so I don't know, like, what else he's going to be doing. The, but the question I have is, like, some something that was a big, really fun point of season one was what a good lawyer Celeste is. And, like, obviously, uh, or I don't know, obviously, in movies and TV, judges always advise against representing yourself. But, like, um, Celeste seems suddenly in such, like, a hapless and I know she's dealing with a lot of trauma. She's like dealing with how she's medicating that trauma, all that sort of stuff. But when she gets served and she just goes like, no, and drops it, that's a fine reaction. But then we cut to Renata talking to Madeline about like which lawyer she's getting her. And I'm like, isn't she a freaking legal shark? Does she not have sharky lawyer mm. friends from mm-hmm. elsewhere that she can call? Like, why is, why is Renata having to find a lawyer for Celeste? Like, that's, you know, that's a question. That's a good about. point. Yeah. And, and it's, I, you know, I had sort of forgotten the lawyer um, plotline on first season, which is, you know, my bad, but also maybe the fault of the show for not kind of reminding us a season. I don't know. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll get to that. Maybe she'll kind of collect herself and be like, oh, wait, I know how to fight this. Um, but, oh my God. Uh, Fingers yeah. now crossed for a huge Nicole Kidman standing up in court. That would be 
quite Just something. Burning but, the house down. Yeah. Um, with regard to Dennis O'Hare, I like to think that, um, you know, they were like, okay, so Meryl, we have the scene with this lawyer. We're just going to get like a local actor. And she was like, no, I want Dennis O'Hare. <laughs> <laughs> and they called. He was like, yeah, yes. Oh, right away. Of course. <laughs> she just I summoned think, him. I feel like I've, I've talked about this probably on this podcast before, but I always think of that scene in Wayne's world where they like replace the random gas station attendant with Charlton Heston. <laughs> it's oh. like, this guy's fine, but can we get Dennis O'Hare? Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would love a Dennis O'Hare versus Nicole Kidman. Uh, if this show just turns into that legal drama, I'd be okay with it. Um, so yeah, so that is all of that. Is there anything that we, oh, well, okay. So I want to circle back to something you mentioned before, uh, tying in your reference to Catcher in the Rye and also, um, your heady private school days. We got someone writing in asking us if we thought maybe, um, they were going for something a little Donna Tart-esque um, in this second season. Um, uh, the Secret History, which is, I think, Donna Tart's superior novel. Um, there's first a killing, spontaneous and not completely devastating. Then the secret of the first unwinds the players involved and the group ends up killing one of its own. Spoiler for the Secret History. Uh, whoever is likely to implicate the others. This is the second murder. Uh, could the killed be Mary Louise, Bonnie, just a thought. Um, do you feel like the tone of season two, Big Little Lies, is one that, that feels like, I mean, I, I, we're seeing the unraveling of the players. That's true. But do you feel like we're headed towards another murder or possibly a suicide, as we sort of indicated with Bonnie? Um, hmm. No. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think we're headed toward a, def- toward a defeat. Uh, mm. and I don't mean for our, our main characters. I think they are going to defeat something. Uh, and, w- and, and, and it might have compromise loaded into it much as it did last season. Um, but I, 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 I don't see the, I don't see David E. Kelly and Leanne Moriarty playing the same trick sort of twice. Yeah, I agree. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you know, I, I, I think I've been, I've been a little up and down on this season. I, th- I really thought this episode was strong after the third episode, which kind of lost me a little bit. Um, but I, to the show's credit, in a way, I really have no idea where they're headed. Um, and uh, that's kind of the fun of it. But yeah, I just, for whatever reason, call me, you know, Elizabeth cupping the face of the show and seeing something, but I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't see a murder specifically now. Um, my other, uh, <laughs> my other, um, I don't know, too, too far out there take, uh, on this season, uh, came when I was watching the party and, and they played Disco Inferno. And it's just burn, baby, burn is sort of like playing behind them as they talk. Um, and I've been watching, uh, too many episodes of Lost, I think, but I'm like, what if they're dead the whole time? And <laughs> this is their purgatory and they're just being punished for their crimes and stuff like that. That's also not what this show is, but, uh, wouldn't it be amazing if the devil came out at the end and was like, you've been punished this whole time? Who would play the devil? On uh, Big Little Lies, Richard? B.B. Uh, Newworth. Great. Nailed it. Uh, damn Yankees. Anyway, um, all right. So um, last thing I want to talk about uh, email-wise that we got. We got a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about our opinions of Robin Weekert's uh, therapist character. And, um, you know, you, you and I have been sort of going back and forth on, like, how either realistic or effective we think her methodology is. And we had a lot of people push back on us um, and, and actually some therapists write in and say like, there are therapists who like do push their patients in this way. It can be effective depending on the patient. The thing that they did agree with us uh, seemingly agree on with us about is that for a first meeting with Ed and um, Madeline, an intake session as it were, it was her tactics were perhaps way too aggressive for that. Like the way in which she mm. pushes Celeste, um, some people like don't seem to have a problem with that, but the way in which she treats Ed and Madeline for their first lesson. And Madeline seemed to agree because she's like, let's go to big Sur. It's gotta be yeah. better than that woman. <laughs> that, yeah, I thought that was really funny. And yeah. it just was like, uh, yeah. Um, well, that's the thing is like, and I think that one of the, one of the most electrifying things about the first season was, was, was watching, those therapy sessions tease out what was really happening with Celeste and Perry. You know, it wasn't a right away kind of thing. Um, and, um, 
and yeah, and and then so and and so while when she's talking to Celeste in this season, like they have context. There's time, you know, they have spent time together, and and so her tactics might make more clinical sense um, f- for them than it does, for, yeah, for her to go right into Ed and Madeline and their sort of fractured psychology or whatever. Um, uh, that said, you know, either way, I still want Robin Weigert on the show. I like those scenes, yeah. e- even if she's you know not always the best therapist. Uh, great actress. Uh, mm-hmm. not always the best therapist. All right. Here's my last question to you before we, we head out. Um, we see Renata and Madeline having, um, a little meal. Um, we see the investigator, um, you know, at the hospital and at, and at their brunch or whatever. She's sort of just here on the fringes, circling, watching, waiting to pounce. Um, Madeline and Renata are eating avocado toast and mixed berries. Mm, looked good. Uh, which is like just sort of the most, uh, California brunch I can think of. What would you, what would be your brunch that you would have in Monterey, Richard? I mean, that looked pretty good, I gotta say. But, uh, my favorite actress in the world told me that it's the best pizza ever, so I think I'd have to go for that. <laughs> You'd have to like pull the cheese. I didn't know you cheese. could do that. Who knew? They should Thanks, make it Mary in Louise. like they should make it in like string form or something. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fried um, string form. Yes. All right. So, um, yeah. If you guys want to email us, stillwatchingpod@gmail.com. We really appreciate your emails and uh, help us view the show uh, from different angles. But I, I'm with Richard here that like I think this was a real strong chapter in our saga, and I am excited to see where we go from here. Uh, Richard, when we come back next week, and next week's podcast might be a little later because it's unclear whether or not we'll have an advanced um, mm-hmm. screener for the episode. So you might get it on the Monday or Tuesday. We'll see. But um, Richard, until then, where can people find you? I'm going to be curled up on that outdoor couch that, that, that Ed and Madeline don't really seem to appreciate as much as they should be. It's so, it's so nice. Uh, and from that couch, I'll be writing for VF.com and tweeting at Rylos. Where will you be? I will be hand sewing matching gold lame gowns for Richard and I to wear <laughs> for the rest of the podcasting season with sequin berets. Um, and listening, uh, to the tramps and writing on VF.com. Yeah. Yeah. We should sort out our gift bag budget too. Oh, bag, yeah. Yes. I was uh, thinking like 10k a bag, but we, we can we can work it. We can have yeah, the details. Yeah, yeah, air. yeah. I I've 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 heard that there's a new color for the iPad and I think we should, you know, really really go for it. Get that new perfect. Um, <laughs> a lilac <laughs> gold or something. Ultra rose gold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um all right, we will see you all back in Monterey next week. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.